0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Just the Truth podcast. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are sponsored by the Thomas Morse Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect for women in law for life, family, and religious liberty. So you can find them and how you can get involved in protecting all of our great, wonderful freedoms that are God-given and that our founding fathers saw fit to require our government to preserve and protect at thomasmoorsociety.org. You can take action uh, primarily by donating. This is a wonderful organization, obviously. I'm special counsel with Thomas Moore Society, and uh, in fact, today, uh, Wednesday, I will We'll be back in court in L.A. County with John MacArthur, and uh, we are still committed to making sure that church is essential and that the government recognizes that. So uh, Thomas More Society is a wonderful organization. Very, very grateful for their sponsorship of this program. And today we are continuing the conversation with my good friend, Matt Tench, who is an attorney uh, himself. And uh, we have gotten a lot of really great feedback from everyone who's very interested in hearing more deeply about the truth and the apologetics. Uh, which is really how we can uh, better explain our rational faith, that Christianity is not just um, a belief that's separate and apart from uh, the rational world that we see around us, but actually that's a, it's an explanation for the reality to which we're presented, and um, that Christianity is the only rational explanation to answer life's most essential questions. So we're going to continue that conversation right now with Matt Tinch. Hello, my friend.
1: Hello, Jenna. It's
0: good to be back. Great, great. And uh, we took we took a break because I was out uh, for Easter visiting my family out in Colorado. Great to be back home. And uh, so we didn't get to this podcast last week, but we're hopeful to now get back in the saddle of doing this weekly uh, every Wednesday to examine uh, apologetics and to continue to give a rational explanation for our faith. So Matt, we're continuing with the resurrection apologetics. So uh, take
1: it away from here. Sure. And uh, let me just say, I think you did an excellent job of introducing why this is important work for us to do. I don't think, honestly, and much to my dismay, that most Christians take it seriously. And what you end up finding as a consequence of it is, you know, when, like with your interaction over Easter, you know, somebody comes out and says something that's, you know, popular within the modern culture and then you come back and and say something that lines up with scripture and it's seen as what is ridiculous to the popular culture and and people say well what gives you the authority to make a claim like you make and the the reason why we are called to be disciples it's not an option as a Christian is to be able to like it says in 1 Peter 3:15 always be prepared to give an answer and um so when we speak out on uh, cultural issues from a Christian point of view why do we have why do we believe that we have the authority to speak uh in such contradiction to mainstream ideas and that's because you know again we've said this before it's not the it's not the inerrancy of scripture it's not the creation it's not revelation Uh, these are all good topics to explore and there are answers in them too but just like paul says if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And what that means to the to the, the new Christian out there or to the un, unengaged Christian is that without Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then you have no basis to use any part of the Bible to make any kind of claim, whether cultural or political, personal or otherwise.
0: That's a really, really important point, Matt, because so many people, even some self-professed Christians, miss this point, and they think that just the Uh, the good teachings of Jesus are sufficient. And they say, well, you know, Christianity is just a way to live your life um, with some semblance of morality. And Jesus taught good things. And um, that's also true for any other uh, sort of belief system. And so they have this kind of universalist perspective that Jesus was just one of many good teachers. And so as long as we uh, just say, well, Jesus taught to love each other, and that's good on some subjective definition of good. But you know, because he taught um, do good, love your neighbor. You know, some of, don't judge. Some of these trite phrases that they lift out of context from Scripture—that's all that Jesus taught, and that's the only thing about Christianity that they need to believe but they're missing the most essential point, which is what separates Christianity as a belief system, as a worldview from every other religion. And that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our need for a savior, and that we have to repent of our sins, believe in the truth and the reality that Jesus is the son of God. He is Lord. He is co-equal, co-eternal with God, the father, the person of Jesus Christ literally came to, to earth in the form of a human, uh, lived, died on the cross as a perfect uh, human and then rose again three days later, that literal physical resurrection. And that when we Uh, believe in that truth we repent of our sin and recognize him as lord and savior of our lives that is life-changing and that is the fundamental essential truth that everything else is built upon and once we have that then we can go and uh, describe concretely and objectively the measurable difference between right and wrong good and evil we can have uh, perspectives that are built on that foundation and that truth in every other aspect of our lives. We can learn how to live rightly. We can uh, become uh, indwelt in with the Holy Spirit and then understand how to live righteously through recognizing that truth. Because as you said, Matt, without that first initial foundation, the rest of it doesn't matter. The rest of it then we're no different really than just any other belief system in Yes. uh in living our lives and it's no different than believing in Santa Claus or the Easter bunny it's just a matter right. of saying well collectively we think this is a good way to live our lives but then that becomes subjective in terms of morality
1: yeah and and i think you know if you ask paul and, you know paul we know as in our previous discussions we we started down this road by saying you know and it was it was it was by design because we, we didn't go straight into examining the, the stories themselves, the accounts uh, given in the Gospels themselves, because obviously the, the, the easiest leg to kick out from underneath that straw man is to say, well, these are written by religious people with an axe to grind. They did it for some ulterior motive or, or to, due to some perceived benefit. And so we can't trust those. And so, what we wanted to do in the way that we approach this topic was say, OK, before we even get to the stories, let's back up from here and, and recognize this isn't Jenna Ellis saying this, and this isn't Matt Tenge saying this. This is this is the research done by, and th- this is an important point that I think a lot of people miss, is that the, the information on the first two episodes concerning the resurrection that we started with is not based upon conservative evangelical uh, uh, New Testament professors. These are Across the spectrum, and this has been a radical shift in the last 30 to 40 years, that not only do conservative evangelical scholars, a key word there, people who research and publish peer-reviewed articles on the topic in major journals, not only those New Testament scholars, but even the agnostic and atheist critics of the New Testament, like Bart Ehrman and others, say, yeah, We can trust these documents, these certain documents, to be historically reliable based upon how we do history. You know, we talked about some of the criteria that goes in how you how do you judge an authoritative writing? And so what you you find a lot of people uh, say is, well. These were written by Jesus's followers, so they had an axe to grind. But we don't say that. I mean, this is the thing: we don't reason the same way when we approach the Bible, which is curious. I'll just throw that out there. When we, re- we when we go to the Bible, as we do, say when we discuss. The Holocaust, or nine eleven, or anything else—you know—do we discount the testimony of the Jews who suffered in the Holocaust because they were so close to the tragedy itself? Do we discount the the uh, uh, the officials who give us an account of what happened on nine eleven because they were in the government? Well, most rational people realize the flaw in that kind of thinking. You know, even when we talked about some other historical figures, most of what we know and what most of what we determined to be authoritative in a historical sense, not to say that it's inspired, not to say that it's divine, but to say, can we trust the authenticity of these documents is to say we want early, as as close to the event as possible, independent attestation of the major points that that surround this event. And so you have to, if you're going to be consistent, if you're going to be logically consistent, and that's what we want to be, You you and I both say, if they find the body of Jesus Christ, then there's, there's no reason to believe that Christianity is true. And, and you shouldn't believe it if, if you can produce such evidence. But what we say is, if you're going to be logically consistent, apply the same reasoning that you do in any other area of your life to the way that you go at this. And the other thing I think people miss is, we're going to get into the gospel accounts today, is people say, well, this is the Bible. You can't trust the Bible, right? You can't trust the Bible. Well, this wasn't always the Bible. People lose perspective on what the Bible is and how it came together. These, these gospel accounts, for instance, Paul's letters, these weren't set—the the New, the New Testament writers didn't create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. These are not people in the normal course of their life, and most of them, you know, were just average people— um, going going about their life when they were called into this wouldn't have set out to uh, contrive a story like this. What happened, you know, in, in most events in life that are tragic, like the Holocaust or the shooting of JFK or 9-11, these are called impact events by psychologists. And, and that's why, like, you can remember something from your early childhood very precisely. But if you ask, you know, what I did 10 days ago, I'm going to have to look at my phone or my schedule or something, my my um, social media accounts to give me a kind of refresher as, what to, as to what was going on that day. But when you have something that's as impactful as the crucifixion of your leader and then his resurrection, whether it's written you know, um, 40, 50, 60, 70 years after the account or not, it, it it's the, the details are still gonna be clear to you. I asked a World War II veteran about whether they remember being shot down over the uh Atlantic or, or or the Pacific or something like that. Um so we the point here is that we have one set of rationale that we use to judge life in general that we can see, touch, smell, taste. But when we approach stuff like this that's hotly debated and is a, a hot button Then we leave our rationality at the door, and then we bring in our own worldview, keyword of the day, there's uh, like what you're talking about. We all have a worldview. And so when we come at the Bible, because it's such a central issue to the competing worldviews, then we leave the rationality at the door.
0: Yeah, and and Matt, I think uh, that's so important to highlight, and and, uh, we tend to... And unfortunately, because of how our culture has created this kind of perception of the Bible as just um, a book of stories or a holy book, uh, which it is a holy book, but um, because it's, it's a book that um, further describes the faith of Christianity, but it's not um, just a collection of 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 writings it's not just um a a book of mythical stories i actually don't even like when they call them bible stories it should be no i don't
1: um, yeah i agree
0: yeah it it should be these are this is basically a case file essentially of it's yeah, a history I,
1: book i apologize i i did leave something out when i started on a path there and and if you know me at all and people at my church and in other places in my life will know this i get on a topic, and then something comes to mind, and I start following that, like a, you know, a squirrel (laughs) or whatever. But the point that I was going to say is that, you know, these, you know, we have in the Gospels, or what are commonly referred to as Grecan-Roman biographies, just like we have with Alexander the Great or Tiberius Caesar, which is some of these other historical figures we've talked about in the past. These these are historical biographies that tell you, give you snapshots of the person's life, but not only the Gospels, but also these secular Greco-Roman histories written by these other historic about these other historical figures also include miracles and things like that. But the difference also that we have is that we have occasional letters that Paul wrote to the different early churches that he didn't intend to be, you know, gathered into a book that we called the Holy Bible. Um, You and I view that through inspiration. Other people can just understand it as Paul had a need to write a letter to these people to inform them about early things. And so what happened is that in the first century, when all of this stuff was being gathered, they were very open to what they were going to consider to be the canon of the New Testament. And what we have collected in the Bible is not something somebody set down as a group and decided to write together. What we have is a collection of writings from these early followers, and we pull them together and say, do they have the hallmarks of the consistency that the other disciples or other people in the faith at the time uh, uh, recounted about this event. Now, you have some second century gospels, quote-unquote gospels, that come into account. These are, these are accounts that are written, you know, a hundred or, or so more years after the event takes place, and they have vivid hallmarks of legend in them. I think the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas, one of the two, talks about how at the resurrection— A talking cross comes out of the tomb and and a voice from heaven comes down and says, have you preached to those that sleep? And the cross responds, yay. Now, this is clearly something that is cartoonish. uh, But what we have in the gospel accounts is we have very, you know, raw, um, unembellished, oftentimes embarrassing um, accounts of what happened during that time because they're written from a an eyewitness perspective about what actually happened at the time, and so these are not this is not a part of a committee assignment to come up with a book. This is something that the early church did to say, "Hey, we have these writings from Paul, we have these writings from matthew mark luke let's let's pull them together so that those who come after us will be able to have these same writings and understand." what we ourselves did, and that's how it became what we know as the New Testament. And I think people lose that perspective on what it actually is and how it came to be.
0: Yeah, and and that's absolutely a really critical point. And I think you know, just like our Constitution, right? A lot of people miss uh, the importance of context and history and how it yeah. came to be. And we tend to just uh, view it through a lens of our current era and what we're told about it, instead of studying the rich history around it. And obviously, you know, we recognize that the Bible is divinely inspired. And I don't use the Constitution as an analogy uh, to say that the Constitution was divinely inspired, just for all of the. People who will comment later, but yeah. um, <laughs> but uh, but I think that that uh, that's so important, Matt, to to draw out and make sure that we understand as Christians why it's so important to understand how uh, the Bible came to be, and specifically, um, and especially the New Testament, when we're talking about the credibility and reliability of these eyewitnesses. And um, just to go back really quick to something you said at the very beginning, um, it, it is so important for Christians to understand all of this and be able to give a rational explanation for their faith. The, the most disappointing comments, frankly, that I get on social media or emails or other things um, in response are that, well, I believe in God and I don't need an explanation. It's like
1: absolutely. that's
0: so that you're missing the whole point and you're missing the point that if you are going to fulfill the Great Commission and teach others about the truth that Jesus reveals and as revealed in scripture and the truth of the world around us, you have to be able to give a rational explanation. I'm not going to say to any logical, rational person, well, just believe uh, because. You know, because it sounds great or because, you know, that's what I believe. That's not a good enough explanation. It wouldn't be for me. If I want to believe in the truth about a certain event, if I want to believe in in, and trust the credibility of eyewitnesses, uh, like you said in the very beginning, we use a completely different metric in our own lives to determine the credibility and accuracy of historical events in the most recent past and even of news items today, then we do the truth about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Why? No, we should be consistent as Christians. And Matt, real quick, we're going to take a break here, and um, we're going to be right back with more about the truth of the Christian apologetic uh, with Matt Tinch.
2: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
0: And welcome back to Just the Truth Podcast. I'm Jenna Ellis, and I'm talking with my good friend Matt Tench, and we've been describing uh, the truth about uh, not only the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also why it's so important, Matt, that we have a Christian apologetic, that we as Christians understand how to uh, rationally engage this conversation.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we've gone to great, great lengths in the opening here. And and the reason why is because, um, you know, people uh, like to, you know, use uh, innuendo and, and all other kind of cheap kind of uh, non-thinking uh, attempts to try to discredit what we're about to talk about. About today, which is in part why we started with the scholarly research, which is saying, can we rely on these documents? You know, are, are they historically reliable? And and we talked about First Corinthians. Uh, this is an occasional letter from Paul. We we talked about Galatians, the end of Galatians one and the beginning of Galatians two, as another occasional letter from Paul. Today, we're going to look a little bit closer at the Gospels um, and and see kind of from a, you know, you're an attorney. Um, You did some prosecution, didn't you? I did. Yeah. So when you're judging the credibility of a story, or at least when you're trying to convince a jury of the credibility of the story, if, you know, for instance, uh, somebody has uh, time prior to the trial to spend with co-defendants, like they get to spend time together um, they're in, it may be, you, you know, you don't request for them to be separated in the courtroom. So the one can't hear the other one's testimony and they have time to sit and, and kind of digest each other's story. And then they get up on the stand and they tell exactly the same story. And not only that, but you find that there are errors in their story and their errors, most importantly, are exactly the same. You know, what, what in the normal course of your experience does that lead you to believe?
0: Right. And that's where uh, when you have these witnesses that it looks like they've corroborated their testimony, that they were coached maybe, or that this is a fabrication is when everything is exactly aligned. Because, I mean, think about it. If you have a family dinner and let's say that there's even just, you know, four or five of you around the table and it goes for an hour, there's a couple of topics, it's not even a meaningful event right it's not something that was necessarily um you know a trauma in your life or something super significant and a couple of days later you ask each of your family members hey so what was the most important thing about that dinner they're they're going to have some different ideas right or what do you remember about that dinner what was the most um you know who was there what was served even if you're asking fact questions not opinion like what do you think was most significant but just fact questions you know some people might remember Um, the the dishes of what they liked best or what they actually participated in. Like if it's a Thanksgiving meal and you don't particularly like the cranberry sauce, you may not remember that that was on the table, right? Now, was it? Yes. But does that particular detail matter to the overall truth of what you're testifying to, that there was a dinner, these people were present, it was the Thanksgiving holiday, all of those things. So actually when there are some variances in testimony, that actually lends more weight and credibility when we're talking about eyewitness testimony,
1: yeah, and and one thing that we'll probably get into on a future podcast is um, somebody who's kind of come onto the scene uh, in re- recent scholarship within uh, not only New Testament studies but Old Testament studies is Michael Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser, um, and he talks about kind of he was he he was the scholar in residence at FaithLife Logos Bible Software. And he, you know, has a doctorate for, you know, in ancient Semitic languages and all this other stuff. Like he was a dude back there behind the software, letting the engineers know, you know, this is what this should mean in context and, you know, all the boring stuff. You know, he makes fun of himself all the time about, you know, all of the work that he did would, you know, put you to sleep in a matter of seconds. But that's important work. And what he says in, in, in you know, to be honest, as a younger Christian growing up, I even kind of had this view myself, is we have this view of inspiration as Christians, that we believe that the disciples were just going about their day, doing, you know, whatever they had to do, and then all of a sudden, a lightning bolt from heaven comes down, zaps them, they black out for a few hours, and they wake up, and they go over to the desk where they fell down, and they look down, and there's a whole ream of paper filled out, and they say, hmm, man, that's good stuff I wrote when I was passed out. You know, we we have this view of inspiration, like they had no thought of their own going into their accounts. These are personal accounts. Um, so when they get details into them that are different, for instance, and, and, and somebody who does a good job at handling this is Dr. James Torr. You may be familiar with him. He does some of the Socrates in the city with Eric Metaxis, and and uh, he now has his own show himself. He's talked to John Lennox and, and other people. But one of the things that he does is he goes through the the gospel accounts and and lines them up and shows, and and if we have time, we can go into some of that, shows how there are, um, you know, differences in the testimony uh, from, or the the accounts, not testimony, but okay. So they have differences in their accounts, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't invalidate them because just because one person, you know, accounts that. The women arrived, and the other one says Mary only, and the other one, it doesn't say only, it just only mentions Mary, Jesus' mother. And then then another one uh, recounts that Mary, Jesus' mother, and the other Mary came, doesn't invalidate any of them because they're all writing from their own memory and from their own experience. And so, like you said, at the Thanksgiving table, some of them are going to focus on some points more than others, but you can look at them. And 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 line them up and and see how the stories jive together. And some of the things that we may talk about later is that there are other um, embedded, um, uh, unintended, embedded um, uh, collaborations between the different gospels. Like Luke will validate something that leaves a question in John, uh, or or that you know Mark will validate something that there's a question about in Luke, or vice versa. Um, and so these stories are written by individuals who had personalities and had experiences and brought them uh, with them through divine in- inspiration to write these accounts. But if they were exactly the same in every detail, that would be suspicious. If they had left us without any other account than one account, then it, it would call into question whether we could um, rely on that. That, so that so Matt, um,
0: yeah, and that all makes sense. And one of the questions that, um, that I've heard that probably some of um, our listeners right now are thinking is like, okay, well, so you're saying that about these people who were eyewitnesses, but yet you're also telling us that the Bible was divinely inspired. If God divinely inspired the Bible, then wouldn't he want every detail to
1: match up? Uh, uh well he may he may not uh but the the divinely inspired not only goes into the writing of it but it goes into the preservation of it and and you get this same kind of argument when you we talk about preservation because there's copies and copies and copies and copies and copies and so there's apostrophe over here and there's a period over here and and that's not that's not what inspiration talks about it says it what it means is it's just what it if you know the what the word inspired means you know to to be spirit filled or whatever it's a it's a motivation through the holy spirit to make an account of these things why why would matthew write these things down why would mark write these things down you know these people who wrote these accounts didn't have the big three motivators uh, to write these accounts you know the big three motivators to lie or to do anything uh unethical is usually uh, surrounding either money and None of them got rich. And, and in fact, Paul probably got poor because he, he was uh, sponsored by the, the Jewish um, uh, faith to go around and stamp out Christianity early on in his life. Uh, they either do it for sex. We have no record, not, not only from uh, the gospel accounts, but even extra biblical. We have no uh, any, uh, hint that this was done for anything sexual or um, power. That they would do it for power. These are the three big motivators. And not only did they not get power, but uh, Sean uh, McDowell did his doctoral thesis on the martyrdom of the apostles, and and we have very very good evidence for uh, you know depending on the how you judge the evidence from two uh, up to four or five of the disciples that died you know horrific deaths, um, and then we have no other testimony, no other competing narrative that shows that they uh, recanted their faith. And so inspiration, it it, it means many things, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be identical to one another. Because why, listen, if they were identical, if that's what inspiration was supposed to mean, then why are there variations in the stories? What's the point? What is the point in having three men write down the exact same line for line account of an event? It just is. It's just there's no way to verify that it's even independent attestation because you could just easily say, well, no, they just erased Matthew's name and put Mark's name on there. So these these are the kind of things that we have to combat as Christians, like you said, uh, with people inside the church that, that have these, you know, kind of childlike views of these certain things. And and I don't say that to be mean. I say that to myself. I I mean, I understand how going down this road of uh, examining these things is scary because, you know, we talked earlier that some people like, you know, I believe Jesus exists and that's all I need. I don't need anything else. Well, there's a couple problems with that. But one thing that's true about it is that an experiential uh, relationship with something is a valid way of knowing something is true. I'm not going to tell you if you can't, you know, recite these details line for line that you, you know, you lack some level of faith that you know you're not doing um what God has called you to do. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that you can know something experientially, but we're called through scripture to be disciples. It's not a request. It's not something that Paul suggests we're called, you know, we are bomb servants. We are bought with a price. We are no longer our own. And, it, it, and the Great Commission is to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And and when you do that, you're going to have questions come up from a secular culture. You know, some of us weren't privileged to be born in a Christian home. I was, but there's other of us, uh, other others of us out there that weren't and so they're gonna have legitimate questions that we as believers are called to have an answer for. Mm
0: -hmm. And, And as we are growing in our faith and our understanding, that's what Paul says, um, you know. To you, you no longer have, you know, the the milk of of babies. You're no yes. longer like that. You have to go into the meat of the word. And as we yes. grow in our faith, and we have more challenges. I mean, I think of any topic, hopefully deeper today in my 30s than I did when I was 10 or when I was in high school in my teenage years. You know, you keep growing in your understanding of the world and more complex subjects, and hopefully as you're also growing in the knowledge of the Lord and how you can live rightly and respond to the challenges of life and the questions of life, then you you will have a more deep understanding of a Christian truth and and that's something where, again, with some of these people who have this very, very shallow understanding of the Christian faith, that it just means, well, you know, let's just love everybody. Or it means that, you know, you never tell anyone a harsh word or um, or some of these things that are very, very yeah. trite. That's not what Paul means in growing in the grace and knowledge of the truth. Right.
1: Yeah. And, it, and it's a great point, Jenna. I mean, you touched on Hebrews. I think it's, I don't have my... Bible here in front of me, but I think it's Hebrews 5 12 through 14, which is one of my favorite passages of scriptures. It's, I, I witnessed, it would almost be a life verse for me at this point in my life because I made mistakes in my life, you know, some serious mistakes, as I'm sure everybody listening has. And I'm definitely, me too. <laughs> Yeah, I'm completely convinced that if I would have taken my walk, and what we're talking about here is sanctification, you know, there's three levels of your, you know, relationship. There's justification through your salvation that comes, and then there's glorification later when you get to heaven. But in, in between there, there's a long you know, not relation to eternity, but a relatively long period of time of your time here on earth, depending on when you get saved, that you go down the sanctification path. And what I've told people time and time again, is that if all God wanted us to know was was that Jesus so loved or God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have ever, everlasting life then all he needs is a piece of paper with John 3:16 written down on it written down on it but that's not what happened we have the rest of the scripture there and so why is it there the reason why it's there is because the rest of it is for growth it's for our personal growth you know we have a high calling you know it's, it talks about a the the high calling uh, the mark that is set by the life of Jesus Christ that we're supposed to be continually being conformed to. And I'm I'm telling you, and I say this to myself, I'll speak to me. If I'm not moving forward, I'm moving backward. Mm -hmm. So it's important in your walk to be able to not only understand these things so you can go out and tell other people about them. But let me tell you this, for me in my own walk, I was saved when I was five years old. But you know, have mercy on my daughters, they're going to know a lot more than I did by the time, you know, they're 10 than I did by the time I was probably 16. And that's no dig on my parents. It's just that this world wasn't something that we were aware of at the time. But now that I am, I can tell you the benefit of it for me as a lifelong Christian, and and part of it that makes me ashamed, is that my relationship with God, personally, my experiential relationship with God, and then. You know, my knowledge of who God is and what that means to me and how that should affect my life has grown such more, uh, so much more intense and so much more sweeter as I continue to to walk down what these may seemingly be uh, scary roads for some Christians, because you know they're they're surrounded by a secular culture where they think, man, if I go research this stuff, then I'm not going to find anything that backs me up, because you know everybody hates God and everybody, you know. Is you know uh, Christianity is is old and outdated and no longer hip or whatever you want to say. Like they're afraid that they're not going to be able to find an answer for their questions. And let's be honest, we all have questions. We all have times of doubt in our life where we think, you know, I don't know. You know, I just don't know. But what this does and what has done for me, and I think you could attest to this yourself, is it it makes um, the reality of who God is ever more present in your life. And for me, I can tell you, just in my own personal walk, like it has made me more conscious of the small things that I let myself get away with in the past. And I think and I had this conversation with somebody the other day and uh, I have a, a midweek men's group that I meet with. And I, I um, was saying, you know, we all sit here and say that we believe that God is real. But if God was with you in your times of um struggles, like when you're willing to compromise what you know is true. If God was physically manifested right next to you, do you think you would go through with that? Probably not, right? So, but we say we believe in God and that God is omnipresent and God is omniscient and all-powerful. So he is, in effect, in the room with you when you decide to compromise. But what happens, at least in my case, and I'll speak for myself again, I don't want to speak on anybody else's behalf, but like it's become much more like a, a, a reality to me. The more I spend in this and the more that it becomes something I can touch, you know, me, you know <laughs> metaphorically speaking, um, the more I'm conscious of the fact that, you know, I, I owe a duty. Through what Jesus Christ has done in my life it's it, it, in scripture it's called my it's called my reasonable service. My reasonable service after being saved from eternal separation from the God of the universe is to do what he asks me to do, and he only asks me to do what's good for me, so like what's the contradiction here, Matt? you know, get with it, so it's important not only to go out and make you know new Christians into new disciples. But it also is for us as the the lifelong Christian or the or the new Christian.
0: Mm-hmm. And Matt, I so appreciate you sharing that because you know that just reinforces the reason that. Christians need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together and making sure that we are around other Christians that will not just affirm us in whatever life decisions we want to make and have this, well, you know, you go, girl, or, you know, or, yeah, you. I'm just, uh, you know, whatever your decision, I'll support you, but actually exhort each other. And, you know, that that word meaning, you know, bring each other closer to the truth. And um, I am so grateful in my own life for— for having really wonderful friends and mentors who continue to speak truth into my life and that I can go to as sounding boards that I know will give me scripture-based advice, not just what they think I want to hear. And in the times in my life that I've gone through whether it's challenges, um, questions about my faith. Um, One of my personal um, crises of faith, I've described it that way in the past, was going through law school and seeing how law is taught as totally arbitrary. And that completely, that idea completely clashed with what I know is the truth from scripture and how to kind of reconcile, well, how do I advocate for law in our system of government with understanding that moral truth is objective? And, you know, that's kind of what got me into this line of work, frankly, Um, you know, and apart from just practicing law and, and to genuinely reconcile, can I advocate for the truth of God? Is this still the truth as I understand it? And that expanded my view and I grew in the knowledge of God being forced to uh, to reconcile these two kind of conflicting viewpoints and say, okay, what is truth? And in going through, you know, things that um, in my personal life with, you know, whether it's relationships or family issues or whatever it is, I mean, we all have things, either mistakes that we have personally chosen to make, and I've definitely made uh, personal choices that that were not the best, that were against uh, scripture and have suffered consequences, or by the grace of God and his mercy have not suffered consequences that I should have. Yeah. Um, and we all have those things. And to to be in, and and I so appreciate, Matt, that you are willing to say that as well, um, because I think also for a lot of Christians, it's kind of this idea that if we ever admit that we aren't Perfect Sure, we'll admit in the general sense we have sin and oh yeah. everyone's unrighteous, right. but we don't want to admit that we're imperfect now or in a particular instance, right. and that's really where the rubber meets the road. And that's why it's important to have truth-based responses to say, okay, if I'm right now living in fear of um, of dying from COVID nineteen, or I'm concerned about I've lost my job during the pandemic. I mean, all of these things. You know, and we could go on and on with examples of very. Real problems that people go through on a day-to-day basis or just over the last year of our entire world facing, um, you know, this this disaster, there are truth-based biblical principles that we can learn to orient our mind to the truth, to God, that help us respond in a way that is truth-based, and that's where it's not just a a catchphrase or, you know, to say, well, Um, you know, God eliminates all fear and we can go boldly and, you know, go us and all of these sort of verses that are life affirmations, basically. They're speaking just to Christians who recognize this foundational truth. And that's what's so important about living the Christian life and growing in the grace and knowledge of the truth.
1: Yes. Um, So I... I know that you probably have to take a break, but we if we want to get <laughs> you into read my the, mind. Okay, well, yes. <laughs> we, can do that. we can get that. We can come back.
0: Yes, and that's a great place uh, right here to take our last break here on Just the Truth Podcast. I'm talking with my good friend, Matt Tinch, and I hope that you will stick around and be thinking about in your life um, how, if you're a Christian, how you are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And hopefully we are challenging you to be more committed to learning apologetics, Giving an answer for your faith. And if you're not a Christian, hopefully this is challenging you to think about what is your worldview? What do you say that truth is? What is the evidence of your faith? Everyone has a worldview, everyone has a faith. Um, And is yours truthful? And do you have a rational explanation for that? And we would love to uh, introduce you to the person of Jesus Christ and hopefully uh, get you into to a church. Um, you can always email me and my team directly at just the truth at america's And we'll be right back with more of Just the Truth podcast. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to Just the Truth Podcast. I'm Jenna Ellis, and I'm talking with Matt Tinch, and we are talking about the truth of the apologetic or the uh, giving an answer for our faith and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. So, um, Matt, we took that break, and now we're kind of going to pivot here a little bit.
1: Yeah, um, I think that, um, not to be cliche, but we should go where the Holy Spirit leads, especially in topics like this. Um, And so I I appreciate that time that we had to kind of lay a, a broad kind of outline of why this is important and why people can be encouraged by these things. Uh, but to run through, just we'll, we'll touch on, and, and this is a dirty little secret, right? Everybody's been informed. I'm not a theologian. I'm, I'm not a seminarian. I, I, I These are not original ideas to me. I had to start somewhere. And so I am, I am just bringing to The popular mind, the ideas that people who've worked very hard on these things have already come to. And so one of the things we're going to talk about here today um, in the time that we have left is William Lane Craig's um, four facts and his four facts that lend the credibility and that the the modern New Testament atheists, uh, secular, uh, you know, publishing scholars will accept as uh, true. Uh, aside from the gospel accounts themselves, is that according to the gospel accounts, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Um, the other one is that on the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus's tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Then on multiple occasions, point three, under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experiences had experiences of the risen Jesus alive after he was dead, um, and then four, the original disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite having every predisposition predispi- pred- easy for me to say right predisposition <laughs> to the contrary. And so let's examine that first one. Jesus, after his crucifixion, was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this is highly significant because at the time in the early Christian church, there was a strong um, dislike of the um, the, uh, the the Pharisees at the time. You know Joseph of Arimathea, being part of that elite Jewish group, um, buried Jesus in a tomb uh, of his own instead of being disregarded as a common criminal. And the reason why this is important is that when you go to make up a story, particularly when you are talking about you know the uh, your Spiritual guide, the person who you uh, claim to be perfect and lived a perfect life and and was risen from the dead, you wouldn't include details about a member of uh, the group of people who had Jesus killed. Now we know Joseph was an outlier within this group, but they wouldn't have created an, a story honoring a member of this uh, these judges within Jewish law to give him a place of honor in this story of the resurrection. Um, The the, the likelihood that they would have included somebody like Joseph of Arimathea in the gospel accounts is unlikely to be something that is contrived, but rather is something that is just an honest recount of what happened. Secondly, um, on the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus's tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Now, not only is this an interesting point, but it, again, it goes to uh, lend credibility to the fact that this is not a contrived story. And particularly, and, and I know it's not popular today, and, and it sh- should have never been popular for just being honest about it. But back during the first century uh, in, in Jerusalem and other parts of the world, women's testimony was not even acceptable as uh testimony to be admitted uh, you know particularly within Jerusalem into a Jewish court of law i mean a, a, a woman back in the 1st century Jerusalem was no more important in in it it's almost even hard to say it nowadays but cuz you know we know so much more than we did but uh you there was on the it was on the line of the testimony from a pet in the family like it just was completely um, discarded as be, able of being credible. Now uh, not only was that the case, but what you notice in the um 1 Corinthians letter that Paul writes, one of the occasional letters in it's first uh, it's first Corinthians 15 three through five, when he, he lays out, and we talked about this in an earlier episode, if you need filled in on it, go back and check out those, but he he, he writes this early creed, this early Christian creed that based upon the way it's written, we know it's a non-Pauline, early Greek style of writing that was rabbinical in nature. And now he leaves out of that account in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, the the, the part about the women finding Jesus' empty tomb. And the reason why is that the gospel accounts, again, to remind everybody, are written in the style of the Greco-Roman biographies that we see through other historical figures. And so these accounts in the Gospels were written just as like an eyewitness account. So whether it was flattering or whether it was boring or whether it was embarrassing, they just just included the details that they remembered from the event as to be completely um, comprehensive about their recount. And so the reason why you don't see it in the Corinthian account that Paul writes this letter to the the, one of the early churches is because it's it's more of an apologetic than it is a biographical account and so what Paul is trying to remind the the church at Corinth is that remember like Jesus, you know according to the scriptures, was crucified and he he died and on the third day he rose from the dead like remember that guys remember that explanation as to why we do what we do. It's written as an occasional letter and including an apologetic for the church to bring re- back to remembrance, um, you know what what they are doing all this for. But in the a gospel account, it's written as just a biography. It's just telling you what happened. And so, uh, for them in the in the um, uh, gospel accounts to include the testimony of the women who who discovered the tomb would have been very unlikely to occur had this been something that they would have made up you know, when you go about writing, um, you know, a tall tale or a legendary story, you know, you don't include uh, embarrassing details. You don't include Mm -hmm. as eyewitnesses the testimony of people that were not viewed to be credible. Right. That would just
0: make no sense to say, okay, the the first people who you're going to have as eyewitnesses are the people that aren't deemed to be credible. I mean, this would be, this is why, you know, a lot of uh, going back to, you know, the, the court analogy, why sometimes for prosecutors, it's like, well, you know, the only person that was there was, you know, this guy with a really long criminal record. But, you know, right. hey, that's the only eyewitness I have. And, you know, that's that would never be their first choice as a witness. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and and that's that's an important um, point to, to bring out, because, again, we leave our reasoning at the door when we come to these stories. So not only that. But, um, you know, it's also an embarrassing detail when you consider the context, because if you're going to be Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, any of the gospel writers, um, not only are you unlikely to include it in the details that the women whose testimony was not acceptable to the culture at the time as the first eyewitnesses, but you would have not also included that his most ardent you know, disciples, the 12. I mean, these are the 12. They were all, well, at this point, it was 11. Judas had done, did his thing. But at this point, his 11, even Peter, who denied Christ, um, were found cowering and scattered in fear as to what would come of their lives as a consequence of Jesus' death. You know, if it would have been something that they would have made up, wouldn't you think that they would have said, you know, we stood by him the whole time. We knew, according to what he said, that he was going to raise from the dead. And as a consequence, we went to the tomb ourselves and, and threatened to fight the Roman soldiers and take on the whole right. high council priest. Right?
0: They would have built themselves up as, as the heroes, or at least you know, the sidekick heroes of Jesus of the story. I mean, if you're writing a, a novel and it's something that you know, you have discretion because there's no facts involved, you're going to paint yourself if you're one of the characters in the best light
1: absolutely i mean they it it makes no sense for them i mean because remember the whole point of this is to document the what we ter- termed earlier the impact of that of the resurrection and you know part of that inspiration is don't be lying when you're writing about what you saw right mm-hmm. you gotta tell the truth because the truth ultimately will set you free just to overuse a, a phrase but uh, you know if we're not going to deal with the truth then we can't you know everything else that we say becomes suspect at that point um, so it's an interesting point, I think a very crucial point about the women who discovered uh, the empty tomb um, One of the other things that we uh, had kind of touched on before is that on mul- on multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced uh the risen Jesus after the crucifixion. Now this, this fact is something we've touched on before, just to kind of gloss over it here. This is something that is almost universally accepted among new Testament scholars, because the, the list of eyewitnesses that uh, occurred in, in the first letter to the Corinthians that talks about Peter, the 12, the 500 and James, his brother, um, you know, these, these, are testimonies that are they are believed to be true that these people actually saw what they considered appearances of the risen jesus now what do you say if you're a, a skeptic in in relation to this and you have to look at the skeptical research and say wow people like bart ehrman are saying that they actually saw what appeared to be a risen jesus what what did what what Then what do they say? I mean, that would be my natural consequence if I heard somebody talking on podcasts like this and say, well, you're telling me that these people don't believe in Jesus. But they're saying they saw that they they can attest to historical fact that his disciples saw him after. So are they dumb? Like, I don't understand. No, what they have to do is that they have to come up with these conspiracy theories like that Jesus had an identical twin brother that nobody ever knew about and who lived outside of Jerusalem all his life, and they had concocted this plan early on in their life, and that they knew that Jesus was going to create such a fuss that he was going to end up in a, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, right? Sealed. And then that they would come in the middle of the night while the guards were sleeping, and they would remove Jesus' body, and his twin brother would go in behind him, and then voila, he appears, and and now Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, this is ridiculous. This is clearly ridiculous. Um, so, when, when it comes to this kind of thing, they have to put together these fantastic um, possibilities that nobody believes is, is possible to explain why G- Jesus had an empty tomb and that his, his followers saw appearances of him after he was crucified. Just as, you know, for those out there who may be wondering, the other thing. Um, the original disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite having every predisposition to the contrary you may remember Jenna I'm sure you do that you know when they were in the upper room they were all fighting over who was going to be the, the, the greatest, greatest among them and hell, yeah. yeah I mean Jewish the Jewish faith had no idea uh, that there, there was going to have a messianic a messianic uh, figure who would be uh beaten and killed and and then hung on a tree. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, according to the in, in Deuteronomy, there, to be killed and hung on a tree was to show yourself as being accursed of God. And that you were under special condemnation if you were to be hung on a tree to be killed. And and not only that, but this to the to the disciples would have been the most the, the, the worst catastrophe, because it means that they had been following a, a heretic around all this time, and the Pharisees were right. and so the fact that Jesus died on the cross was catastrophic for them and what they thought was going to happen, uh, even though Jesus, when in retrospect, we look at these accounts, went to great lengths to say, "Hey, guys, you know I know I haven't said this up to now, but I got to go die." Uh, because this is part of the plan, and they they couldn't understand why he was saying that or what he meant by it. Uh, Jewish belief in the afterlife um, precluded anyone from rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the general resurrection of the righteous dead at the end of the world. And so, then you have to ask yourself why, uh, you know, from these gospel accounts, and then matching it up with secular history. Do we see an explosion of faith in Jerusalem? Now, remember, Jerusalem is where the tomb was. Now, you and I had joked about this before, but the, the Pharisees' response to the disciples coming out and saying he's risen from the dead was not to laugh at them and then point at Jesus' body in the tomb and say, you guys are full of new wine. What's mm-hmm. wrong with you? Right there he is. That wasn't their response to him. What was their response? It's kind of like what Bart Ehrman and some of these other skeptics say, the, the centurions who were there to guard the tomb came not to the Roman leader at the time because they knew they would get in trouble for it. They went to the, the high priest and told them first, and the high priest said, well, this is what you're going to do. You're going to tell them that um, the disciples came and stole away the body in the middle of the night while you were sleeping. So what happens when you tell a lie in a hurry and you 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 don't know how to put things in proper order is you make up stories that don't make sense. And so then you have to ask, well, how did this hold up when they went to go report this? Because how do you identify who stole the body while you're asleep? Right. Right? That's something we see from the gospel accounts, is that the 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 supposed Cover story for this from the the Roman guards that were supposed to be guarding the tomb was that they were supposed to go report to their superior that Jesus's disciples came in the middle of the night while they were asleep while they were supposed to be keeping watch, mind you, and stole jesus's tomb out of the body and anybody who's who's seen images of the tomb and knows the size of the stone and the the wax seal and all this stuff to to understand the kind of effort that went into sealing this tomb the story that they put together to try to account for the the empty tomb is ridiculous and what it does is it 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 is um it's a hostile um attestation so this is somebody who has every reason to lie about what happened they don't want to admit anything of what the di- disciples uh claim to be true what what their story does do is it it attests to the fact that there was an empty tomb now right. You're in Jerusalem, Jew and Christian alike knew where the tomb was. They knew that, so it's very hard to contemplate a s- scenario in which the disciples, in the middle of the night, while the guards were sleeping, could be identified as the people who took Jesus out of the well-known tomb he was in and replaced him with his twin brother that nobody knew about his entire life. I mean, this right. is the kind of stuff they have to do. This had the kind of extent they have to go to to come up with these. Um, these ideas in order to cover for these well-known historical um, facts. Now, James Tor talks about some of the uh, supposed uh, problems that you and I talked about. Was there one woman? Was there all the women? Was there two women? Um, What about the young man that they saw when they they came into the tomb? Was there two? Was there one? Uh, Which ones ran to, you know, in which direction? these go all into um, different aspects of how to, to conceptualize those accounts into one's narrative. And so I know with, with time, I just want to go over real quick, really quick, C.B. McCullough, to bring us back to our discussion now, he wrote a book, uh, and he lists six tests in his book, Justifying Historical Descriptions. Now, this is a book that most historians use when determining what is the best explanation for an, a given historical fact. And the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead passes all of these tests. Now, prior to this, we've talked about the embarrassing details that that the uh, gospel accounts gives like um you know Jesus had a couple prostitutes in his bloodline, uh his own family uh thought he was out of his mind. I think the way the King James put it was that they they said they thought he was beside himself. Um, you know, James, Jesus' brother, doubts him his whole life, um, and then later became became the head um preacher there at the church of Jerusalem. Now, Jenna, I think you have brothers, don't you? I do I have two. Now, tell me what it would take. Now you grew up with them, and I'm sure there's a lot of uh much more pleasant than unpleasant, but I'm sure there's some unpleasant memories there in growing up what it w- What would it take for you to come to the realization and acceptance and that the the willingness to die for the fact that one of your brothers claimed to be the Lord of the universe? What would it take? <laughs>
0: Uh, wow, it would take a lot because I grew up with them and I've seen uh, every flaw, right? And they've seen yes. every flaw of me. And yes. uh, we all know that we're not perfect. And I can say without yes. a doubt that, you know, my brothers have a lot of really, really good qualities, but I can say yes. definitively, nope, not Lord of the Universe. Right. And I would laugh at that completely. It would take yes. a lot. Um, and even for people who, you know, may hold up, um, my brothers or me or, you know, anybody in our family as perfect from the outside, anyone from the inside would laugh.
1: Yes, absolutely. So there's a, there's a whole host of these things. People like, uh, Frank Turek goes into, um, these embarrassing details on, on, un, uh, unintended, um, corroborations and all the different gospel accounts and stuff like that. But I I wanted to cap off that that one detail there with James becoming an ardent believer and and all Mm. of the disciples being willing to be martyred for this belief. Now, it's different than what we know of today as modern martyrs. These modern martyrs, they are not dying for something they say they saw, they're dying for something they say they believe is true, which is drastically different. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of people that will die for something for a cause they believe in, but nobody's going to be, you know, grew, grew, um tragically killed mm-hmm. uh, for something they know is a lie. And so, just real quickly, the the, the six uh, tests to bring us back to this: the the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead passes. The need for the explanatory scope. So when you go back and look at a historical fact, what is the what is the hypothesis that has the greatest explanatory scope? It means that the to- it tells why the tomb was found empty, why the disciples saw the post mortem appearances of Jesus, and why the Christian faith came into being. Two it has great explanatory power means that it explains why the body of Jesus was gone, why the people repeatedly saw Jesus alive despite his earlier public execution. And number three, plausible. Given the historical context of Jesus' own unparalleled life and claims, the resurrection serves as a divine confirmation of those radical claims. Mm -hmm. It's not ad hoc. It's not contrived. This is four. It requires only one additional hypothesis that God exists, and even that not being an additional hypothesis if one already believes that there is some kind of God out there. Five, it's in accordance with accepted beliefs. How, you say? I thought people don't raise from the dead. Well, that's true. That's what it is. God raised Jesus from the dead doesn't in any way conflict with the accepted belief that people don't naturally Rise from the dead. The Christian accepts that belief as wholeheartedly as he accepts the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead. Mm. And then six, finally of the test, it far outstrips any of its rival hypotheses in in meeting these conditions: the one through five. Down through history, varied alternative ex, exam, um, explanations have been offered. Some we talked about the conspiracy hypothesis, the apparent death hypothesis, hallucination hypothesis, meaning everybody who claims to have seen Jesus was all hallucinating um, and and so forth. They just get ridiculous. But such hypotheses universally are rejected among contemporary scholarship. None of these naturalistic hypotheses succeeds in meeting the conditions as well as the resurrection hypothesis. And mm-hmm. so I would encourage your viewer, your listeners and your viewers, if, if, if they get wind of this, is that there, we live in a time, Jenna, where it is probably the easiest time in, 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 in history that I know of in my personal life and beyond. To be able to give an answer, to be able to Mm -hmm. give a rational reason for the hope that we have, this stuff is all accessible very easily and with, you know, no no insane amount of effort. I mean, obviously there's details here and if you want to retain them, just like anything else you want to retain, if you want to give a presentation on it, it's going to take some time to prepare that, to be able to make it part of your memory, but to just get an answer I mean, we've talked about stuff that Frank Turk's done, uh, William Lane Craig's done, Gary Habermas, James Torr, Sean McTowell. There are others. I would encourage your 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 listeners to go investigate this for themselves. If you're a Christian mm-hmm. and you're scared, be encouraged.
0: Don't yes. be scared. That is a wonderful message, Matt. And I'm so grateful for your time uh, today and weekly, every week that we can talk about the truth and giving an answer for the hope that lies within us and so uh, we will be back of course next week and Just the Truth podcast is on Monday through Friday you can go back of course and uh, listen to past episodes if you want to catch up with the discussion that Matt and I have already had Um, and I am so grateful to the Thomas More Society of course for sponsoring this podcast And a not-for-profit national public interest law firm that's dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family and religious liberty, uh, things that are are so important because we started the foundation of truth and the Christian worldview. So you can find them at thomasmoresociety.org. And thanks for listening to Just the Truth.